one of the reasons that we wanted to look into neuroscience for this is because mood is not enough. So if there's more going on, what's going on? Because clearly something is because we're not able to, to cure this. So why can't we cure this? And what we'll find is that mood is the tip of the iceberg. And the iceberg goes a lot bigger and deeper than we thought it did. We're Lane and Sharis, two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. This podcast is focused on using science to understand the parts of us that are unknown, but impact us every day. Our brains affect the way we think, feel, act, and even understand the world. But what we don't realize is that so much of it is happening on autopilot. By learning more about how our brains work, we can use that knowledge to regain control of our minds and become happier and healthier people while positively impacting others. This is the Brain Blown Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome or welcome back to the Brain Blown Podcast. So when we were planning for season two, we actually had a listener reach out to us at info at brainblownpodcast.com, and they had asked for us to cover this topic in this episode specifically. As it turns out, that topic just exploded into what this entire season and potentially future seasons could evolve around, and that's going to be more around human health. In this season, we're going to be starting with looking at when the connection between the brain and the mind is ultimately the origin or the source of the condition being experienced. And in this episode, we'll be tackling one of the most common and most serious illnesses that humans experience, and that is depression. Just a brief disclosure, we will be speaking largely to the colloquial experience of depression rather than looking at the clinical diagnosis of it. But in bringing that up, we thought it'd be important to discuss the differences between the two. And so, Lane, I'd love to pass it off to you. If you'll share with us a little bit more of the difference between the two and why we're talking about the difference. Absolutely. I think it's also important to, to talk about why we're doing this when we're doing it. Because not only do I think it's great to, of course, always honor what our listeners are asking for, but it felt really important to me to make sure that we put this as the first episode of the season because this is coming out in January. And I used to work a lot with people who were experiencing either the colloquial or the clinical experience of depression, and it would increase often around the month of January. That classic seasonal depression. And honestly, even outside of just seasonal depression, we just all kind of feel crappier. In January, yeah, honestly. really true. Uh, one of the things I used to do was to normalize that, like, you are not alone if you're feeling even the colloquial version as well as the clinical version of depression because what we're seeing for most parts of us is that we're coming off the holiday experience and being with family and being with friends for good or for ill, actually, mm. because essentially there just isn't anything in January really of that same caliber or February really or March and so we've got months where it is often darker, it is colder, and there's less of that socializing activities, things to look forward to for three solid months. It's hard on us. Right. That makes sense why it doesn't often start in, say, October when the weather starts to get colder, specifically for us in the Northern Hemisphere. Yes. Because we have the holidays to look forward to. And even if you're not looking forward to them, it still marks a passage of time. Yes. That things are different, that things are changing. Mm -hmm. Whereas January, February, and March kind of blend into each other they a little do. bit They do. They always do. Great point. So it is important to note if it's January and you're starting to feel a little darker, A, know that you're not alone. B, when in doubt, talk to somebody, double check, make sure this is, isn't something serious. So with that being said, let's talk about what it looks like if it is serious. So when we're talking clinically, we're talking about depression. And as Sharis mentioned, this is the most common diagnosis we have in mental health. It affects 21 million American adults, which is 8% of our population, and it affects 15% of our population in youth. Those numbers do shift when we're talking about populations in, in more minority identities. So that's important to note. Mm. When we're talking depression 
we have colloquial versions of diagnoses and clinical versions. And colloquial is is essentially, we've all kind of talked about this and have a shared language around it. So we know when I say depressed, you're probably thinking, I feel sad. Mm-hmm. And I probably feel sad a lot of the time. Yes. There is sort of a, a thing that's happened in the last few years that I've noticed where people are taking that colloquial definition, especially with social media, and saying, oh, you have this. I have this. I must have this diagnosis. Yes. They don't know or even are aware of the difference. Yes. And diagnosis is really, really complicated. So when we're talking about diagnosing you, I would never, we would never diagnose somebody who just felt sad a lot as somebody who had depression. I would need a lot more criteria to know about that to make sure it actually was depression and not something else. Mm. So when I'm looking for depression as a clinician, there's usually a category of diagnoses that un, that are labeled as depression. When we're talking major depressive disorder, which is the most common, we're talking about I'm feeling sad, but I feel sad nearly every day for two solid weeks without any break to that. And that's when we start to go, hey, this might be a clinical thing as opposed to just a I feel sad. The problem with the looking at the colloquial version is there's lots of reasons why a person could be feeling something. With something like depression, sure, major depressive disorder could be the reason. But what I used to train a lot of clinicians on as somebody who specializes in trauma is that feeling sad all the time is literally a part of the post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis as well. So you could feel depressed and it could be depression or it could be trauma. Mm-hmm. And I have to suss out which is which because treatment is very different. If I'm treating you for depressive disorder, when you have trauma, you're not going to feel better. Yeah. Or to make this even more complicated, it could be due to things like low levels of vitamin D. Specifically for those of us who live in more of the northern culture with less sunlight, this is a real factor. And it's really important to know that you're not going to therapy weekly if all you need is vitamin D. That is just the clearest example of why diagnosing is so complicated and really why we're focusing on the colloquial definition of this. It's so important to highlight how difficult it is to diagnose because it's why you can't diagnose yourself. Yeah. And so in this episode, we really want to focus on the why. We want to focus on the why we feel so sad during this time of year, why the sadness appears in our life and stays, and why sometimes it can be unbelievably crippling. Well, it's important to also talk about the colloquial version because we can't diagnose through a podcast. (laughs) We can't help individuals with the what. Somebody who's specifically trained who's spending time with an individual's what and why they're feeling that what is what's going to help them. What we can do in general is more of the colloquial version because we can get into the colloquial version of why. Yes. In Following that, I think a great place to start and looking at why is looking at why it showed up in the first place. Like, when did humans start even, when did we even learn what depression was? And so I want to introduce a little segment in this podcast that we're calling What About Caveman Joe? Uh, That was something we did a lot in season one, looking through evolution and how it built up into our lives and became what it is today and why our brains are ultimately affected by it. But for this one, yeah, let's look at Caveman Joe. What's going on? Why did he feel depressed? What made him feel depressed, etc.? Well, and I would say we don't have a lot of details on Caveman Joe. And I think there's actually very good reason for that, but we'll get to that more later. Caveman Joe might not have actually felt depression. More on that soon. But what we did start to see was depression has been around for a very long time, specifically 5th century BC is our first recording of it. So, you know, a little bit. Wow. And where we first saw it was from Hippocrates in antiquity. And Hippocrates described it as, to quote, if fear and sadness last a long time, such as a state of melancholy. Hippocrates argued it was due to an imbalance in the body and argued treatment was bloodletting, baths, exercise, and diet. I need to say as a clinician who was treating this for 10 years, I have not seen a great deal of improvement outside of we don't do bloodletting anymore. But it is not uncommon for treating depression that we will talk about the importance of things like baths, exercise, and diet. We are still struggling with our experience of of how to treat this, right? (laughs) Clearly, if we haven't really changed much since 5th century BC. Holy smokes. Obviously, we've made some improvements. I am making a joke. However... Jokes are funny when there's honesty to it, and in this case, there is. (laughs) So true. Oh, man. 
along those lines too, I think an important thing for us in looking at why we feel depressed or why there is depression is also asking, why are we looking at this through neuroscience? Absolutely. Especially because it's depression. This is mental illness. This is what you would call like the mental health area. Like people would be looking at this through psychology and psychiatry and areas like that. So what importance did you discover or do you have to share with us around why we should look at neuroscience for it? Totally. And I think it connects really well to Caveman Joe, because neuroscientists started looking at depression for that same reason of not enough has changed in multiple centuries mm. and wanting to know why that is. So Davidson, Pizzagelli, Nitschik, and Putnam argued that the diagnostic criteria is very objective, which is true. We're looking at symptoms and describing them, and they often fall under mood. And specifically, like, this is normal mood versus this is not normal mood, which is way more subjective and wanting to know if there's more of a neural basis. And I think one of the, the really important parts that shows up from Durate and Coaster was wanting to use neuroscience to understand why remission and relapse is so high. It's not uncommon as a clinician, as I mentioned, that you're diagnosing something like major depressive disorder. A complicated thing about that is I can't actually just diagnose major depressive disorder. I have to diagnose specifiers around it. Specifically, I have to talk about severity but I also have to talk about prevalence. So I'm not So you're saying you're looking at it not only based on how poor their mood is and how that's affecting their daily life, but also how often and how long they've been feeling it. Yes. And how wow. severe it is. Yeah. So that's an important piece because in clinical work, it's not uncommon that we see single episode as the start of what is going to become recurrent episode because this relapse and remission is so high. Our treatment clearly isn't effective if we can't stop somebody from relapsing and dealing with this our entire life. So Durate and Coaster wanted to know why. They argue that, that this means if remission and relapse is so high, then treatment is not where we need it to be. They wanted to look at the at neuroscience because they saw these relapses make it more likely to have a depressive episode again. And they wanted to see a correlation between this and to see if there was genetic vulnerabilities. They wanted to go deeper than just mood or negative affect. So if there's more going on, what's going on? Because clearly something is because we're not able to, to cure this. And what we'll find is that mood is the tip of the iceberg. And the iceberg goes a lot bigger and deeper than we thought it did. So let's take a quick break. And then we'll dive into the deeper parts of that iceberg and looking more into why we experience depression by looking at the brain. Sounds good. So now it's time to look at what we're all here for. It's time to look at the brain. So before we jump into the multiple parts of the brain that are involved with depression and give you a little tour through the hand model of the brain, it's important to distinguish between what part of the brain is actually involved and what part of the brain is impacted by it. I know a lot of us are looking for an answer. And we hope that by knowing what part of the brain is involved, we'll therefore know the cause, the answer, and bada bing, bada boom, you're ready to go on with the rest of your life. But unfortunately, we can't do that because we can't just look to what causes depression. We have to look to why we experience it over and over and over again. Yes. That recurrence is critical. Yes, that recurrence. So... If you happen to be new here, in Season 1, Episode 1, we dedicated the entire episode to mapping out our brain. It's a pretty fun episode. It actually is a really great metaphor of our brain in comparison to a map like the world. We dive down not only into continents, but into countries and all the way down into highways and connecting one house to another. It goes really deep. So if you're interested, you're more than welcome to check that out. It was our very first episode. So enjoy 
And Lane. be kind. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy and be kind, as that was Lane and Sherris experiencing talking into a microphone for the first time. <laughs> but we had a lot of fun. We hope you enjoy it. But for now, for those who may be more familiar, we'll just do a quick recap of what we call the hand model of the brain. This is something we're going to use a lot in essentially every episode. So, Lane, can you walk us through that? And I want to give credit always to when we're talking about the hand model of the brain, this is being taken from Dan Siegel who explains that you always have a model of your brain that you are carrying with you. So if you take your hand and you put your thumb against your palm and you wrap your fingers around your thumb, that is the hand model of your brain. And he explains it very simply in terms of your wrist and going up to the first part of your hand is your brain stem. Your thumb there up against your palm is your midbrain. And all of your knuckles and fingertips and all the nubbly bubbly parts are much like the rigid parts of your brain that we think of, which is your prefrontal cortex. So splitting it into thirds, we're going to go a little deeper into that. So I'm going to point to different parts on your hand. Love it. But starting off big, we're going to actually talk about those knuckles and fingertips and bumply things, which is your prefrontal cortex. Because your prefrontal cortex is involved in depression, which is kind of vague, honestly, and really large when I say all of your fingers, you know, (laughs) the top part of your head, depression. (laughs) Still important, though, to quote Davidson, Pizzagelli, and Dietschik, and Putnam, Abnormalities in activation of prefrontal regions in depression have been reported more frequently than for any other brain region. Okay, so vague, but important. Right. Specifically, what they're seeing is largely in the left side. What does this look like? One of the things the prefrontal cortex does is to help us with goals, making them, achieving them, engaging in them, etc. And it's kind of, your prefrontal cortex is sort of your manager, It's the big boss of all of these things. It's helping the rest of the brain carry this out. Specifically when we don't want to, much like your boss does, which is real (laughs) and really significant to a depressed person. Because what we see is people wanting to gravitate towards immediate rewards and tasks. Your prefrontal cortex helps balance that with long-term goals, which means there's a need for delayed gratification, which if you've ever hung out with a toddler is hard. (laughs) They do not have that. (laughs) No, delayed gratification isn't easy even for a lot of adults, let's be clear. Yeah, honestly. If delayed gratification was easy, we wouldn't always be buying pull tabs. It's hypothesized that it seems like we are seeing depression to cause abnormalities in the brain's ability to do delayed gratification. Specifically from multiple studies done recently using event-related functional magnetic resonance imaging, also called an fMRI. It's discovered, quote, a lateralized focus of activation in the right lateral prefrontal cortex. And this is important in inhibiting our desire to just engage in short-term gratification. So when we think of depression, what we see even in colloquial or what we see in movies, right? I'm going to lay in bed and eat a tub of ice cream and watch sad movies as opposed to getting up and showering and doing my taxes. Right. So for people experiencing depression, they can't wait for the happiness, but they're not enjoying the short-term happiness? Is that what you're saying? For people with depression, the ability to do that long-term gratification is hard. I know that I need to do my taxes. I know that it's important. I know that it's not fun, but it's a part of being an adult. It's so I don't get in trouble with the IRS. It's hopefully so that I get a refund, right? That's that's all long-term thoughts, which aren't easy as opposed to leaving my bed, which is comforting, and ice cream, which tastes good, and watching a movie, which helps me disassociate. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you. So prefrontal cortex is where we start, but let's dig a little deeper into things in the prefrontal cortex, specifically your orbital ventral frontal cortex. So hand model of the brain, uh, think of where your eyes would be, which is about this probably first knuckle, right? The middle and ring finger what are we calling that third knuckle or first knuckle i don't remember (laughs) i know the knuckle right above your fingertips yes (laughs) so that region just really honestly this is right behind your eyes like you have your eye socket that goes into your head and then the minute we hit the brain that's your orbital ventral cortex gotcha so we have neuroimaging and electrophysiological studies where it is argued that your orbital and ventral frontal cortex is impacted by depression this is an area that's really important for rewards and punishments I need to do my taxes so the IRS doesn't audit me versus I need to do my taxes so I get a refund, right? Rewards, punishments. The left side being reward, the right side being punishment. In depression, there's a reduction in activation. 
this is likely due to uh, the volume of gray matter that is or is not there. Wow. So they're inhibited by both. Yeah. It's the rewards aren't as rewarding and the punishments don't seem as awful. Absolutely. Wow. So let's dig deeper. Just a little further, literally deeper into your brain, (laughs) (laughs) a little further past your orbital frontal cortex is your anterior cingulate cortex. So it's helping you focus your attention. It impacts your affect. It's also helping you socialize. And it's got a super highway, if you remember from season one, episode one, direct connection to your limbic and paralimbic areas. And that is important because it's impacting your amygdala. Oh, our middle brain. The thing is bad. I'm going to sound the alarm. Yep. Your nucleus ambiguous, your orbital frontal cortex, which you just mentioned, paradoctal gray matter, anterior insula, that's our disgust. Um, basically, this is the area of stress, emotion, and social stuff because we're wired for safety and wired for connection. So this is really that super high way to am I connecting or am I safe? In anxiety and in PTSD, we see a high level of activation in your anterior cingulate cortex. In depression, we see decreased activation. So clinically, one of the ways that we are able to see that there's a reduction is we see people with flat affects very blunted because there isn't even enough activation in this part of the brain to have that same sort of facial connection. Wow. So this is likely due to a decrease in the ACC. Oh, goodness. Okay. So for example, it's not uncommon that there are things that become expected of us and we don't want to do them. In a non-depressed person, your anterior cingular cortex, your ACC, would make a phone call over your, to your prefrontal cortex and be like, hey man, I know we don't want to do this, but we have to suck it up. With low ACC levels, It's like your phone service is just offline. So nobody's calling to say, suck it up. Wow. They're more to just sit in the suck. Yeah. But that also explains too why it feels like you have to almost put on a mask. Yes. Because your face isn't showing the emotion, but you feel like you have to. And so you sort of force it. And sometimes why it always feels like it's a grind. Everything with depression becomes so much harder. And because essentially there's no ACC to be like, yep, we got to do it anyways. So we're going to go a little lower into your brain. So hand model of the brain, we're going to talk about your hippocampus. So if you remember right, your thumb was your midbrain, right? Mm -hmm. So around your midbrain is your amygdala, your hippocampus, your hypothalamus. That's the area we're going to start focusing on next. So uh, hippocampus is something I've been calling the brain's filing cabinet for a long time. So specifically storing memories of episodic, that thing that happened that one time, and the knowledge of where things are, how my memories work in relation, etc. It's hanging out right next to your amygdala. And a metamorphic study done by Shirlene using MRI showed smaller hippocampal volumes when it was analyzing patients with major depression ranging from a reduction of a smaller hippocampus by 8% upwards to 19%. It is currently in the study, they made it clear that they don't know if this causes depression or if it's caused by depression. It is very likely that it is causing recurrent depression specifically. It does seem to be very much impacted by depression. Your hippocampus gets smaller. If your hippocampus is smaller, it's going to be harder to record positive episodic memories. Your brain is about what you use, right? Whenever you use it, it becomes bigger. If you're not using your hippocampus, it's going to atrophy. That's why I lost all of my Spanish speaking from (laughs) high school. Blooming and pruning. We don't use it. We make room for other stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So moving on to the brain, we talked about the hippocampus sitting right next to your amygdala. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel like when there's anything wrong in the brain, it's probably the amygdala's fault. (laughs) I don't know if the amygdala is just a redheaded stepchild. (laughs) I say this is a redhead who just gets all of the flack from what's going on in the brain or if the amygdala is just so whiny that it is what causes issues and i think it's a little bit of both but regardless it's hypothesized that your amygdala your brain's alarm right things are bad gotta sound an alarm is going off way more often it's causing such a high amount of fear fear we think of as anxiety we think of as running away or we think of as anger i'm afraid so i'm either gonna run away from the bad thing or i'm gonna attack the bad thing if you remember right there's that third piece which is freeze. Mm -hmm. And long-term freeze looks like shutting down. So if we have a high level of activation in our amygdala over and over and over again, we stop fighting, we stop fleeing, we just survive somehow. Wow, that's how people always describe it. It's Mm -hmm. just surviving. Yes, 
On the plus side, we do see this impacted by medication. So amygdala, body's alarm, right? Amygdala is also pretty close to your hypothalamus, which is part of what we call your HPA axis. So HPA axis is hypothalamus pituitary adrenal, HPA. Gotcha. Hypothalamus is what I've been calling your body's thermometer. It sort of regulates us to things good or bad. It sits in the same area as your amygdala and your hippocampus, and it has your anterior pituitary gland and adrenal gland on speed dial. They are besties. <laughs> Durate and Coaster state that we have a lot of studies showing that hyperactivation of HPA axis is our most consistent finding when it comes to depression. And this is be- happening because if we remember a lot of episode one, we talk about cortisol. Mm-hmm. Cortisol is that really important chemical to get us out of a bad situation. The problem is our bad situation is no longer a bear. It's taxes and chemistry and that job we don't like to go to. So we're living with our bear, which means cortisol doesn't enter our body and leave it quickly. It doesn't just do a job. It decides to hang around for a long time. Cortisol is helpful in the short term. It is toxic in the long term. Right. So we have so much cortisol in our system that it's throwing our body out of whack. High levels of cortisol can damage your HPA access permanently. Having your HPA access damaged permanently will cause issues between your prefrontal cortex and your amygdala. Wow. It's not only can you not move anymore because you're in freeze, now you're literally being weighed down. Well, at the same time, being terrified. So when we started talking about areas of the brain, we were talking about your orbital frontal cortex. Sitting kind of on top of that is your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And this is also thought to be very much involved with emotion. Gotcha. Real quickly back to the hand model, since we're jumping to back to the first place. This sure. This is fingertips. Knuckles is probably where your orbital. Yes. Yeah, that first knuckle after your fingertips. So a little bit above that in that, like, not quite to the second knuckle, but in between your first and second knuckle sure, is probably that... about where your dorsal is. Gotcha. That sort of flat finger region. Yes. Gotcha. This is an important role because it's thought that your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex helps calm down your amygdala. Phillips, Durates, Roch, and Lane argue that depression could be a result of your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex being unable to tell your amygdala to chill out. Right, that phone is disconnected. Absolutely. So, especially according to Mayberg, if your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex and your ventral region cannot chill out your brain, we are just living in a cycle of fear. And yes, that's going to do damage in our system because our system is not meant to run away at Mach 10 for the entire time. <laughs> so the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is also engaged in top-down progression. What does that mean? So often something happens, you get activated, and you make sense of it. This is bottom-up. Amygdala fired because you saw a snake. Oh, you yell really loudly, and then your brain's like, dude, not, not a snake, actually just a stick, right? Yes, for anybody who may have missed that story, this was a recurring story we'll continue to mention it is the you are going on a hike you are walking you see something on the ground that is long maybe even dark might even have moved or something and you jump away in fear but you look back and you see it wasn't a snake it was just a stick and we call that bottom-up processing because hand model of the brain your amygdala is what's screaming it's a snake and your prefrontal cortex says, oh, we're moving up from amygdala to prefrontal cortex. Yes. It's like, no, no, just a stick. <gasps> that so makes sense. Top down goes the other direction. So it's reappraising to regulate response. I saw a stick. I got scared. But before I acted, I took a second, got my PFC online, realized, just kidding, just a stick, took a deep breath, continued moving. Yes. So DLPFC is the ability to do this kind of top down processing, which is harder. So we're not just seeing a stick thinking it's a snake, yelling and screaming. We are able to grow into a spot where, hey, maybe my prefrontal cortex is able to intervene before I respond. Yes, you can almost learn from your experience and see something and not immediately jump in fear. But it's hard because as human beings, we expect us to always be able to do top-down processing as opposed to bottom-up. When you've got depression, this is harder. Mm. So now let's also talk about neurotransmitters, because when we're talking about depression, it's not uncommon that we're talking about medications to treat. When we're talking about medications, we're often talking about medications that are affecting things like serotonin and norepinephrine. Common medications, of course, are SSRIs or SNRIs. Colloquial, actually, this is sometimes called the happy brain chemical, and it's very common with people on depression to be put on these SSRIs or SNRIs. So what is serotonin? 
It's a neurotransmitter, which is kind of like brain email. And it's doing a lot of things because it's essentially helping to send a message from one location to the other. And it's involved with a lot of things in your brain. It's helping your ability to think, your ability to engage in rewards, your ability to regulate your emotions, to learn and remember, and it's even involved in vomiting. Notice at no time did I say it will make you happy. It is related to the regulation of emotions. And interesting to note here, this is likely because it helps you control your attention around negative experiences. Like when you experience a bad thing, your amygdala fires and responds. And it's like emails coming in from your boss when you didn't show up from work. This makes sense because serotonin is often what we think about when you're in the sun. You get a lot of serotonin. It partners with, you could say, vitamin D. And that would sort of explain why if you're low on vitamin D, you might also be low on serotonin. Absolutely. And that's why that sort of boost would be a very easy fix or that we hope it would be at least a very easy fix. Mm-hmm. But you're saying serotonin is not about happiness. No. It's essentially getting your prefrontal cortex in the game. It's activating the right so parts many different, of your brain. Yeah, that are actually going to support you in getting out of a tough situation. Because it's sending the right amount of messages into the right places. Gotcha. Where did attention come into all that? Let's say it's a Tuesday. You didn't show up from, to work, and all of a sudden your boss is flooding your inbox with like, what is going on? Why aren't you here? If you don't call in, you're going to be in trouble. If you had serotonin, it would be like your brain sending the right amount of emails, letting your HP access respond more appropriately, and your boss remembering, oh, this person took off this day weeks ago. Without serotonin, we only focus on the fact that you're not here. Wow. So we no longer understand the context. It's more of a butt-ton of negative messages. Yes, absolutely. We're only focused on the negative, which is you're not here and I need you to help me do my work. Wow. Norepinephrine is also an important neurotransmitter that we should talk about. As I mentioned, not uncommon for SSRIs, also not uncommon for SNRIs, selective neurotonin reuptake inhibitors. Norepinephrine is like a text. It transmits nerve signals specifically to the cell phones of nerve, muscle, and gland. It's a text that says, move your booty. It's a respectable texter and doesn't text past 10 p.m. at night. But around waking time, it's going to start messaging you to get up, to get moving, and will keep increasing throughout your day. It's helping with arousal and alertness. It's produced by your adrenal gland. So you remember that HPA axis we were just briefly talking about? Yeah, if it's the text that tells you to get moving and your HPA axis cell reception is spotty, see how there's a connection here? Yeah, no, you're going to be staying in bed. Yeah. So the other one we talk about with depression is dopamine. Another neurotransmitter, dopamine. Oh, oh yeah, this is the biggest one by far. We think about dopamine commonly as, as do the thing to get the thing. Yeah, the reward, the reward thing. Yes. Yeah. So if serotonin is an email and norepinephrine is a text, this is like dopamine is very good at sliding into your nerve cells DMs. <laughs> dopamine isn't always just sending pics, though. It's also planning dates, thinking about ways to make you smile, helps you focus, believe that other people are interesting. It impacts your heart rate, your blood vessels, helps you sleep, helps you control nausea and vomiting, processes pain, helps with lactation, learning, motivation, controlled eating. The list goes on. Wow. Your neurotransmitters do a lot. We often think about it in regards to pleasure because we get an impact of dopamine when we experience orgasm or when we eat chocolate. But pleasure, like many things, is something we've simplified. According to Rybot, pleasure includes, to quote, reinforcement, desire, predicted utility, subjective pleasure, experienced utility, remembered utility, and so forth. So let's put this all together in a simplified way from, what, from how I understand it. Cool. You have a negative experience. It fires in your amygdala. It then makes a phone call to your HPA access. But you've had a lot of negative experiences, so it's like politics in a swing state in October. It's a lot of calls and ads <laughs> and DM messages and emails and texts. Your HP access becomes impaired from all of this cortisol, and impaired doesn't mean it's shutting down. It means it's the 2020 elections. This is on. All of this has caused your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex to be like, I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. And stop responding. It gets exhausted and it just doesn't care anymore. Meaning all of the negative things, you're not going to move past them. 
It stops calming down your amygdala, causing a secular effect. Your ACC has that highway towards your limbic, prelimbic areas, amygdala, nucleus, ambiguous, orbital prefrontal cortex, periaqual gray matter, interior insula, and autonomic brainstem motor nuclei specifically, right? So there's no shot all of this is not impacted. It's got a direct highway to it. And suddenly, it's not helping you focus your attention on the positive things or helping you positively affect your mood. It's not far away from your orbital and ventral cortex, which means you stop being motivated by rewards. Because all of this has just taken a beating. It means your whole prefrontal cortex says, screw it. You stop moving towards goals. You stop having the ability to make changes. All the while, your amygdala is still running unchecked. Meaning your hippocampus is taking serious damage and is not in the right weight class to handle this. And the more decreased your hippocampus gets, the less the ability you have to fight depression long-term. Wow. Yeah, really great summary there. Thank you. Let's go ahead and take a little break. Because that was a lot. That was. That was all incredible information. Uh, Gosh, I feel like we danced around our brain for the entire thing, which also just shows how eventful our brain really is or isn't with depression. So we'll take a a quick break and then we'll jump into maybe more of the body and the behavior side of all this. Okay, so in this sciencey section of the podcast, uh, favorite part of it, honestly, uh, in this sciencey section of the podcast, we want to look at a few different things, obviously highlighting the parts of the brain that are involved. So something I thought would be interesting for us to look at when it comes to the body is looking at what does it feel like for people or where where does the body come into all this? Because we learned so much about the different parts of our brain. Mm-hmm. What should we be looking at? in our body. I think colloquially, whenever we talk about the body in regards to depression, it's very common we're hearing about a weight, a heaviness. Like it's just so much harder to get up and to get moving and to do the things almost like we are are weighed down by boulders. Mm. So when people talk about the body in terms of depression, they will often talk about it more into the areas connected to movement, like a weight in your muscles, a weight in your core that just makes it so that you don't want to get out of bed. When we're talking about severity, a lot of times we're not talking about necessarily more or less. We are talking about how long it goes on, how, how much we go without ever feeling like there's a break in this weight. If we think about the body in terms of porridges, if we go back to season one, episode four, in the neuroscience of safety, looking at our vagus nerve, Porridge's argues that depression is a reaction of the dorsal vagal nerve. So if we remember from that vagus nerve, right? Vagus nerve starts at our brain, yeah, up in our brainstem, but it will spread down throughout our spine and throughout our our system, right? And so he's talking about, of course, those three layers to that vagus nerve and the oldest layer of your vagus nerve being your dorsal vagal nerve. So if you remember from your vagal nerve, much like your brain got built in three areas, right? Your brainstem got built first, both evolutionary and in your own head. In our vagal nerve, of course, we had three different areas that got built. The oldest evolutionary wise, without question, is our dorsal vagal and then our sympathetic and then our vagus, right? Mm, sort of mimics the the bottom up growth of our brain. Absolutely. Dorsal vagal is the oldest. Dorsal is what all of us have. Dorsal is just survive somehow. Sympathetic is anger, it's activation, it's anxiety, and vagus is, of course, connection. Vagus being the only one that mammals have. Yeah, regulation, yeah. Yes. But the oldest one that we all have is this dorsal vagal nerve. It is the ability to survive, which in a lot of cases is to hide, to disappear, to become invisible, to become non-threatening. So when we talk about depression being in the body as heaviness, as a lack of movement, that makes sense if we put us in caves. If you're living in a cave with a bear and your bear won't leave, you can't fight it by yourself and you can't flee because the bear is blocking the edge of the cave. You hide. So depression is essentially this thing that's saying, stay, stay small, stay invisible, don't move. 
dorsal is going to be that same thing. It means that your heart rate is lower, you're tired, your blood pressure might be low. That's what's going on in your body. There's this overall heaviness and desire to hide in the body because we're in such a free state that we feel we can't fight what is occurring anymore. So the body shuts down to just survive through the bad thing. Dorsal means, if you remember from that episode, there's not enough energy to run the system and the utilities are on, but no one is home. Mm. An important part that we talk about in trauma work is hyper arousal. A lot of times when we see people who have been traumatized, they're more likely to be anxious, they're more likely to be anger, they're more likely to have all of this, and that's hyperactivation, right? That's mm. your amygdala, oh, I've got to keep surviving somehow. It is exactly what we think of. And then we have the normal one, which is connection. This also fits to our branches in the vagus nerve. And then we have hypoarousal. And hypoarousal is numb, not present. This is what's going on in the body. Looking at this too, we've mentioned a lot of behaviors that come from this. But if we were to sort of summarize it or share even some examples or even warning signs for someone where the behavior that comes from depression is getting severe enough mm -hmm. that you really do need the support, what would some of those behaviors be? DeRate and Coaster argue that a warning sign is to look for how individuals respond to depressive symptoms, specifically arguing that people who respond to a sad mood and depressive symptoms by engaging in uncontrolled ruminating thinking about the causes and consequences of their depression are more likely to remain longer in that depressive episode. We are seeing multiple studies from the past 30 years that are showing that rumination is significantly impacting the onset of depression as well as the long-term experiences. This is what we were hinting at when we were talking about this is diagnosed by mood. But if we look to the brain as to why we're experiencing depression, we're seeing a lot more going on here, specifically in cognition, cognition reactivity, and uncontrolled rumination. Wow. So you're saying it's the attention that we give. Yes. Or, not, or even that we're forced to give in a way. It is the constantly thinking about it, being aware of it, even feeling it. Yes. That makes it stick around. Yes. And Barr gives an example of to why this could be, saying our brains make sense of the world. That's what they do. And they do this through patterns. If we remember season one, episode nine, The Neuroscience of Music, we group things together to learn and remember them. We can't remember the 9,000 different names for blue. We can just remember that they're all blue. It's grouping, right? Mm -hmm. Grouping things, however, cause issues. It's helpful, right? That's how we're able to take on so much. We remember to group. And harmful because grouping in our brain is also what leads to all people of this color are bad. Mm -hmm. So grouping has definite issues for us. Barr argues that one of the bad issues that grouping has for us is it can lead to depression because associations caused predictions. If you remember it from that episode, we can predict music we've never heard before. And in fact, we find the act of doing so enjoyable. But it also means that if things feel bad, our brain can expand on that association to all things are bad, specifically if we're ruminating in the bad. Barr argues that even on a new encounter, we are still looking to past experiences to make sense of it, right? But when we do this, we have the ability to group too much. We start thinking that all things are bad if we group this way. Wow. So to quote, narrow associative thinking or rumination refers to associations that surround a narrow focus. Example, the context of my bad comment over dinner last night, what I said, what I should have said, the resulting facial expressions, the verbal response to it, possible future implications, so forth. If we can adjust this rumination to even just be, for example, what I said at dinner last night was wrong, but somebody gave me a hug when I left, or the food was still really good, or I knew the right beverage to pair with that food, this can take us into places of Maybe I should call that person who hugged me. I should cook more. I should host more. Even just, I'm not all, sometimes I put my foot in my mouth, I have many more things I bring to the table. Barr calls this association activation. It's allowing our thought process to move from one thought to a very different thought. If you're ruminating, you're not moving to that very different thought. All you're doing is focusing on that comment you made at dinner the other night. Depression is often not looking at the bigger picture, not being able to take things into perspective, it's being present with that one bad thing. So DeRate and Coaster make a case that we have studies on depression impacting your ability to control your attention. 
That being said, studies on attention focusing in general when related to depression, not so much. Specifically, what we see is a decreased ability to switch tasks or to handle two tasks. To quote, this phenomenon is typically referred to as attention bias, whereby depressed individuals compared with non-depressed controls show greater attention towards negative material than neutral material. What do I mean by all this? We get in a rut. Things are bad. We start using that to try to keep ourselves safe. We dwell on past experiences. If X thing is bad, all things are bad. We start focusing on how so much is going to just stay bad. We make assumptions about things are bad. And believe me, the problem with assumptions is we have a tendency to prove ourselves right and rarely wrong. So I assume that was bad. Look, it was bad. I promised it was bad. I I showed you it was bad. And we stay fixated. When we stay fixated, we start seeing all of the problems within the brain to make it harder to get out of this rut, to remember good things, to literally record the memory of good things, to be present with the bigger things. The list goes on. That was a lot of information. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I think we're due for one more break before the end of this episode. And I think it's important for our listeners, but maybe also for us too, to go find something that's going to boost your serotonin just a little bit. Find a tasty snack. Find a human or an animal to hug. Or even just look out your window and notice what's there. Focus. Change your rumination. Be present with the positive. And after that, we'll jump into the final part of our episode today, which will be some takeaways. The things that we've learned and some actions that we can take to support not only ourselves, but also others. We'll see you in just a bit. So in our final section of this episode, we're going to speak a little bit to some takeaways that we hope you'll be able to use in some way in your life, either for yourself or for someone that you might know who has depression, who has spoken about being depressed, or who hasn't spoken about it. And you might notice some things based on those behaviors we talked about. So let's talk a little bit about what can we do this week to either learn more about this topic or actions that we can do to help ourselves with it or to help somebody else with it? I think let's start with what we can do to help others. An important takeaway from this is talking about suicide does not make somebody more likely to commit it. Talking about it, in fact, is actually super important. So Sherris and I will make sure to include some resources on the notes on the website, um, brainbonepodcast.com about this, and we will give you some resources with this. But I want to bring this up specifically because in my experience, I find that it's people get naturally uncomfortable around this particular topic. And part of the uncomfortability is, is feeling like they're going to do it wrong, that it could be have serious implications if they do it wrong. I've had people, for example, come to me and say, hey, I think this person is really depressed. Can you talk to them? As opposed to how do I talk to them? But if you are a person's connection, you are the best person to talk to them. And I understand wanting to make sure that you're doing it right and feeling like you can do it right. An important piece is that you do it at all. But we will give tools on how to do this so that you do feel like you have the resources to be able to have those hard conversations. But an important piece of this is remembering that talking about it will not lead somebody to do it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Right. I think that's a really great point because the biggest fear in not doing it right is that you think you'll push them over the edge. And because we have that fear, we become unable to move. When we are unable to move to that person, it just seems like all of their negative ruminations about how the world would be a better place without them are true because nobody is talking to them about the fact that, hey, I care about you. How do I help you? So I will also say in talking about it, I've seen clinicians really nervous about this topic as well. In fact, at one point I was. When I see really good clinicians who are able to do this, it is actually quite the contrary. We think if I talk about this, that's going to lead somebody. And it's actually the opposite. We actually often need to go there. Clinicians who do this well do a thing that I call playing in the dark. 
If your brain is ruminating on all of the negatives, I have to walk that path with you as opposed to ignoring that path. If I ignore that path, your brain will still be like, yeah, but what if, right? Mm -hmm. If I walk that path with you, we can walk it together so we can start to think about the next steps of that path. An example of this is it's so common when people say the world would be a better place without me. The gut reaction is, no, that's not true. You matter. Look at how much you matter. That has value. It does. Right. But sometimes it's not enough because your brain is ruminating and your brain is not logical in this place, right? We remember from season one, if your amygdala is activating, logic has left the building. Absolutely. And we talked about how that that phone line is completely disconnected. Absolutely. They, they cannot understand or even comprehend the better the the happier the the more positive experience yeah not there and they can't and it's hard to be present with logic right, right. we can't expect somebody to have logic if they don't have the ability to have logic mm-hmm. so trying to solve the problem with logic is not helpful okay so the world's a better off without you cool and you you are trying to not be a burden on everybody by saying the world is better off without you and you don't want to be a burden okay say so you go and do this you commit suicide who finds your body There's no question, even if they're a medical professional, that finding somebody's body is going to be traumatic. Is that a thing you want to do? Are you willing to be that person for somebody else? More often than not, people with depression are going to say no. Because again, it's coming from, I don't want to be a burden. Cool. That's a burden. I'm going to follow that with you, right? I'm going to follow your line of thinking until I can lead you into another direction. Let's also talk about the ways of committing suicide and how often it's unsuccessful. What does it mean to unsuccessfully commit suicide? It means you could end up paralyzed. You could end up in a coma. You could end up with a whole lot of other issues that you weren't thinking about that may or may not make you feel like you are more of a burden. Not really what you were setting out to do. Again, I'm going to follow you down that dark path and start to show you where it doesn't go where you think it goes. But to do that, I have to play in the dark. And that is one of the best things that we can do with depression, is to just say, cool, I will be here with you. One of the reasons that that helps us is because, again, if we remember from season one, the neuroscience of relationships, we experience less pain when somebody else is holding our hand. A big takeaway is hold somebody else's hand. It helps us be present with more that's going on, which is also going to go towards what we're paying attention to. So I'm also going again to season one. I'm basically just summarizing all of season one for you in regards to how it deals with depression. A big piece of that is the two episodes we spent on mindfulness. Durate and Coaster argue that a big piece of helping with depression might be learning and practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness in its heart is about attention. It's the muscle that helps us focus our attention on the moment as opposed to the mindless chatter our brain likes to go off nonstop, right? This is super hard because it's a muscle we don't have developed. So if we spend time doing mindfulness, we build that muscle, we get stronger in being able to focus our attention. If we focus our attention, it is much harder to ruminate because now we've got a muscle control to say, hey brain, shush, I'm going to do this instead. No surprise to anyone except insurance companies, but there's a big argument to be made about what we do about it, that it needs to be both medication and therapy, (laughs) largely due to reducing your remission. But there's an argument that therapy, unlike medication, also helps us focus on attention control, which is a heart of what we're dealing with, right? Panscape also argues for an increase in play, specifically with adults with depression, And they're arguing for play therapy, but I think this is important to bring up because we in our current culture often don't hold up the absolute power of play. And even in mental health, it's not looked at past a certain point. Play therapy is valued in children because play is our first language and is a great therapy tool to use when you don't have a shared language. But Panskeep argues for the expansion of this work to help recontextualize these scars from depression. Dan Siegel also consistently argues for the importance of play. He says as adults, we have a tendency to just keep focusing on the next, stop being present in the moment, and stop enjoying the moment. Siegel's argued for, have dinner underneath your table tomorrow. Drive a different way to work, because it's changing your attention. (laughs) 
Figure out a way to be silly, to be goofy, to be ridiculous. Laugh even if nothing is funny, because you're building up the muscles of laughter. Find ways to bring play into your life, because it is what will continue to bring joy and help recontextualize that everything sucks. Barr argues that it's important to remember that what leads to depression is evolutionary-based. Remember, your brain wants you to be safe. It doesn't care that you're happy. So a part of this is learning how to do what I used to call getting you off autopilot. Barr is discussing this with changing your associations and is also arguing around noticing when you are ruminating and learning how to not ruminate, sometimes just by distraction, but warns that we need to change the association or distraction doesn't work long-term. So what I mean by taking your brain off autopilot is your brain will focus on whatever it wants to, i.e. your mindless chatter all the time. Oh my God, I said that thing at dinner. How could I say that thing at dinner? I can't believe I said that thing at dinner. That was so hurtful. What was I thinking? I wasn't thinking. And instead helps take your brain off of autopilot. Cool brain. Thank you for this. This is not helpful at all, right? This is an important tool for three o'clock in the morning when your brain is like, ah, there. I feel like my left side of my cheek is swollen. I must have cancer. Oh God, I'm going to die. What am I going to do with brain? Cool, not helpful. What am I supposed to do about that right now? (laughs) Autopilot is super important to sometimes just remove, right? Specifically in terms of rumination. A weird part that could be beneficial of a takeaway, studies are showing that honestly just reading very quickly helps. Doesn't matter the content of what you're reading. The act can actually help you feel more positive. Reading causes, quote, the activation of the concepts, and presumably faster reading activates more concepts. I.e., real hard to ruminate on something when you're speed reading. Absolutely. I think uh, an important thing to add to that, too, is the reason we jump for speed reading rather than scrolling through your phone is because the type of attention that you're using when you're speed reading is almost not even contextual. Mm-hmm. You're focusing on letters and words and reading as fast as possible and your brain is going nonstop. Whereas scrolling, it more so just kind of continues the numbness. Yes. But in a different way. Very much. I will say on the takeaway, since I went after insurance, I'm also going after therapy. Bar cites that CBT has been noted as a long time for a treatment depression, specifically the work in helping these patients identify thoughts that are connected to negative feelings and learning how to distance those thoughts and learning when your brain works against you. Makes sense. But Barr argues that this has some success when coupled with medication, but it's important to remember that high level of functioning and the ability to do introspection is hard. (laughs) That's a huge thing to ask of people, and it's not necessarily going to work on everybody. And it's not fair to say, oh, you didn't succeed in therapy because you were unable to do a thing that is incredibly taxing and very difficult. It's like me asking you to drive your car, but I forgot to tell you to put gas in it. Or maybe you don't even have the keys to start with. Great, your car is fantastic and taking you from point A to point B. Accurate. But if you don't have gas or a key, it's not going to take you anywhere. So I need to make sure you also know how to walk and ride a bike and take public transportation. All of this matters in therapy. If you feel like therapy was unsuccessful to you, cool. That's not all therapies. Remember associations? Too much grouping of association can be bad, right? May not just be all therapy. Might be that therapy was terrible. So it's, or just a bad fit for you. So it's important to look at other options. I will say I have to, as a clinician and a takeaway, say, if you're worried about this, if you're concerned about it, it is still important, even if the clinician only has something that's not a good fit for you, for you to go see a clinician at all, because self-diagnosing is hard. And it is important to know, remember the why as opposed to the what. I need to know why I'm feeling this way so I know if I just need to take vitamin D pills or if I need to make sure that I'm talking to somebody so I don't feel this way all the time. The biggest takeaway is it is about connection. Depression leads us to not want to feel connected. We want to hide. We want to disappear. Other people help us make sense of ourselves. Without other people, we are not healthy. That is the entire season one. We are more dependent on each other than we would ever feel comfortable admitting. Remember that. Other people are dependent on you. You are dependent on other people. And we are what makes things possible. Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. This podcast is created and produced by Lane and Sherris with music by James Austin. 
To learn more about this episode, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to info at brainblownpodcast.com or reach out via social media to connect.